this evening I'd like to speak about the um, Vipalasa, about seeing what is without a self, anatta, as a self, atta. And uh, the insight into not-self or emptiness is uh, the central insight in the Buddha's teaching. And at the time when the Buddha was teaching that for the first time in Iron Age India, that was a new teaching. There was no one before him who taught that. You know, impermanence, anicca was taught before, but not emptiness. Was even you know, impermanence was even taught uh, in, in Greece, for example. And, you know, other philosophers taught that. But the concept of not-self or emptiness was new. And the Buddha, you know, has made it clear in many of the suttas that a deep understanding and an experience or realization of not-self or emptiness is necessary for liberation. And the first time, you know, that happens at stream entry, that is the first time, you know, when we see things correctly. And it's like, you know, seeing for one moment, seeing to the bottom of the ocean, and then the water floods back in. But we have seen the bottom at least for one moment. And then it's never going to be the same, because we can remember that moment. And that's, uh, in the scriptures, this is called, you know, when the Dhamma eye arose for the first time. So seeing, you know, seeing through everything and then, you know, the um, ignorance reasserts itself. And that this first time seeing through, the, the first three fetters are permanently cut, but then there are still seven fetters left and they come back streaming in. And the definition of what is seen, you know, when the Dhamma eye arises for the first time, is this is the definition, the classic definition of Nibbana. This is a translation by Venomanalio. This is peaceful, this is excellent, namely the stilling of all preparations, the relinquishment of all assets, the destruction of craving, detachment, cessation, going out, letting go. And it's often it's compared with the going out of a flame. And then, you know, where is the flame gone? That, that question doesn't really apply. It's the fuel, you know, which has gone out. And the fuel for the flame, you know, is uh, greed, hatred and delusion, craving, clinging. So once that is completely let go, then there's no more flame. And, uh, you know, all of those is all only similes. They can kind of give us a kind of a helpful hand to try to understand, but we really never be able to fully understand with the thinking mind. That's only, you know, like fingers pointing towards the moon, and if we get stuck at the finger and don't look at the moon, then it's not really helpful. But if we know it's only like a, a kind of, a, you know, a map, but it's not the territory, then we can use it as a map and that can really help. And then, you know, this uh, seeing of the Dharma eye, this arising of the Dharma eye, happens like four times in a row, starting with stream entry and then ending with arahant 
relationship in the classic the early Buddhist and Theravada teachings. And, you know, even child monks like Rahula, the Buddha's son, are, you know, on record for having realized full enlightenment. So it is not like a, a huge intellectual undertaking necessarily, but it is that, uh, you know, full turning towards, which requires, you know, besides real strong uh, faculties, also a lot of faith, I think, you know, and sada, which is, is more difficult for us here, you know, in the West generally, because we haven't grown up in a, in a Buddhist culture and, and, and faith isn't really something which is encouraged in our, you know, uh, culture. And, you know, most important for this to happen for those four breakthroughs is that meditation and daily life go in the same direction. And in whatever form that works for you, you know, that we leave our insights and that requires faith, that we leave from that place, you know, what we have seen and allow what we have seen to spread out through our lives. This integration is incredibly important for these breakthroughs to happen. Because, you know, meditation investigates our experience and then through investigation what happens is, you know, that disenchantment, nibida, happens, which is uh, directly translated, nibida means not finding. So if we investigate our experience and we don't find like a separate self, a permanent core or anything like this, through repeating that investigation, you know, that sense of disenchantment starts to permeate our being. And then it's important to integrate it into our lives and uh, to actualize it, you know, through living it. And this is like these two strands, you know, kind of empowering, mutually empowering each other. One is the wisdom strand of insight or realization, and the other one is the, the confidence, sada, trust, faith, allowing that insight to spread out through our lives, walking our talk. And, and through that, adjusting our life step by step so that our insights are reflected in our daily life choices. And, you know, our priorities get adjusted. And then, you know, the most important question is, has there been any transformation in our lives? You know, are our hearts more open and flexible? And is there more kindness? Is there more flexibility? That's how we can check it out, you know. Or we can investigate our experience according to the those fetters, you know, which... I could uh, kind of, um, you know, read them out for us. Especially the first three are, are important, you know, which are getting cut permanently at the stream entry. And I remember, you know, when I was still in Amaravati, Achan Sumedho was often encouraging us, you know, to investigate our experience according to those three fetters and to see, you know, are they still arising in our minds or not. And, and the first one is uh, personality belief or personality view, Sakaya Titi, you know, really believing that we are an unchanging separate self. 
Second one is uh, skeptical doubt. Vichy Kicha doubting, you know, the efficacy of the Buddha's teaching, you know, not being really fully able to surrender to it. And the third one is clinging to mere rules and rituals, Silabhata Paramasa, you know, thinking that if we are a good boy, a good girl, and do a lot of bowing and being good, that this is enough for realizing freedom. So that's the first three. And and then, you know, the other ones I just quickly mentioned because I don't think they are, you know, that immediately applicable to where we are in our practice. The fourth one is... Um, the four, uh, the fourth and the fifth is is um, um, greed and ill will, and with you know the second stage of of um, realization, those two get get thinned out to a certain degree. That would be the the once returner, and then. With the third stage, with the non-returner, greed and ill will or aversion get completely um, cleared away. And then the five last one, they get cleared away with arahantship. And if you like, I can just quickly read them out, the last five ones, the five uh, the higher fetters that would be craving for immaterial for fine material existence and craving for immaterial existence, Rupa Raga and Arupa Raga, they are both, you know, um, they're both uh, pointing towards being attached to very fine stage of samadhi or absor absorption, which can, you know, become a hindrance on the path as well because they are very pleasurable and some people can get stuck in that if they don't have the right instructions. But you know, but if we do have the right instructions, then they can also be very furthering on the path because they're refining and strengthening the mind incredibly. And then conceit, in the sense of you know, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, and I'm the same as you. So comparing. Then the ninth one, restlessness, and the tenth one, what's left in terms of ignorance. So the first. Five lower fetters, and then the later one are called the higher fetters. And they are all different kinds of clinging and craving. That's why they are called fetters. And if I'm, as I mentioned, I think in the beginning, you know, in terms of the vipalasa, the seeing what is impermanent as permanent is let go of at sotabana at stream entry, and seeing what is without a self. Anatta as a self, Atta, is also let go at Sotapanna. So those two, that's why that is such a wonderful realization because it really shows us like the central inside of the teaching. And then uh, the second one, seeing what is painful, Dukkha is pleasant, Sukha is only fully let go of with the last uh, stage of 
inside the Arahant ship, so that takes a long time. And uh, seeing what is not beautiful as beautiful is let go of fully at uh, non-return anagami, the third stage. So that's very, you know, deep insights. It's a very deep teaching. And uh, it really depends how well we are doing, you know, with combining the meditation practice and our daily lives. That really, you know, drills it in, you know, into the deeper and deeper into our being. That's really important that they are not like we're sitting on the cushion, but then in our lives we don't really heed, you know, what we have seen. That means, you know, we haven't really seen simply. So this mutual furthering by living the insights in the crucible of life keeps unfolding, you know, according to our choices. And if we live accordingly, then the Dhamma is leading us to suitable circumstances that support more and more opening and blossoming. And in the chanting, which we do in the morning every second day on page 9, it's even, you know, kind of mentioned here where the, the qualities of the Dhamma are described. And one of them is, it's opanaiko, which means leading onwards or inwards. There's people translate it differently. He has written inwards in our book, I would say onwards though. And, you know, every, t- every year, when, uh, every time when there's a new edition of the book, then that word is has been changed already several times, but I'd say onwards. So leading us onwards to suitable circumstances which support insight. And, uh, you know, through more and more coherence and integration of what we are seeing in the meditation into our lives, the data flow basically gets smoother and smoother and more and more information is integrated into the, that form, you know, that, that body and mind. And more and more, you know, of undigested, unmetabolized material, trauma and so on, is, is melted and integrated. And there's more and more flow happening. And, you know, more life can be integrated. We, we can allow more life to be allowed, you know, we don't need to keep everything out because it's all too much, it's all too loud, it's all too this, it's all too that. We can allow it. So we don't need to ever tense up against everything because we are afraid of experience. But we, we have that, yes, we can allow it because it there's no resistance, it just goes through. And in particular, you know, dropping any goal orientation because that's really blinding us a lot. You know, if we really, I need to get out of here, I need to kind of, uh, this is just like freezing, you know, and, and, and becoming very aversive and that's not really helping. So it it results in a gradual refinement of our innate drive to happiness because we understand intuitively, you know, ever better what really brings happiness. And that that gradual refinement, you know, that's like the path 
in all Buddhist schools and it's expressed you know in different ways like with the arahant ideal and the bodhisattva ideal and many other forms of supporting you know the opening and blossoming of the human heart but it all is leading in that direction so that you know that craving for coarse enjoyments and so on you know gets less and less uh, interesting and you know is is eventually you know experienced as a as something you know we we have no interest in it's a you know a waste of time even something we we love to do maybe 10 years ago now we feel like oh, give me a break you know thank you and it's not because we are good or we 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 forcing ourselves it's because we just not we are just not interested and uh, so this emergent knowing, you know, which comes if we live in coherence with what we know to be true. And, and then we can tap into this higher intelligence, you know, which is innate in, in nature and, you know, can invite that to teach us through our intention because we are living the way we, we say we, we want to live. And that, you know, means sometimes taking big risks or small risks and being, you know, being misunderstood or being laughed about or being excluded and all the rest of it. And and then, you know, also you know, seeking out people who are on the same wavelength. Because we need, you know, we need friends and we need Sangha and we need uh, to co-regulate, you know, with others because it's, Sometimes, you know, the going gets really tough. And, you know, even on a virtual level, in a, in a Zoom group like that, it, this is possible. We can feel, you know, when we were doing the New Year ritual yesterday and all, you know, witnessing each other's um, aspiration for the next year. I mean, that gives a sense of of ease and a sense of being seen and being... Uh, received, you know, which is not to be underestimated what that does to the system. That's very, very healing and and gives us a lot of strength. Because, you know, we as as human beings, as members, as social uh, beings we are we, we depend on being mirrored back in that way. That is important for us and that's why Sangha is, is one of the three refuges. And so those filters, you know, gradually dissolve emotional and cognitive filters, gradually resolve, and we have yeah, we are becoming more and more intimate with our experience. And because we have a much deeper and wider range of experience through deconstructing those old patterns of identification and uh, you know liberating us from these old patterns like we you know when we walk with a pair of new shoes and and they are much too tight and then you get back home and take off those those shoes and you have this feeling ah oh, it's like that you know 
every time it's when we're stepping out of a pattern like that, it, it's a sense of relief. And, and there's a wider and deeper way of being in the world. And more clarity arises. And from that clarity, there's more courage also to step forth, you know, to step into that new space and to live from that knowing. Because, you know, when the mind really sees clearly in those four stages of awakening, it adapts. And there is a particular mind moment, you know, which is called Anuloma Chitta, which is the adaptation moment. This flashes up immediately before one of the four fruit moments, you know, those moments of Sotapanna, Anagami, and uh, Sakatagami, Anagami, Arahant. It's this adaptation moment where the mind, you know, adapts and, and some of those fetters are cut. Because, you know, normally the eye is always in the center of, of our experience. And when we experience that fruit moment, and, you know, after the Anuloma Chitta, then for a moment we are stepping out and there's nobody there. And we see to the bottom of the ocean. Just for a moment, that's when the Dharma eye arises. And this is like... This is such a powerful mind moment that it has the capacity to transform the mind and cut through those fetters. Because, you know, what I read before is clearly seen. This is peaceful, this is excellent, namely the stilling of all preparations, the relinquishment of all assets, the destruction of craving, detachment, cessation, going out, letting go. And this is a course change, you know, which happens through becoming increasingly sensitized to reality by honing those seven factors of awakening, you know, which I have been uh, guiding us earlier this afternoon in the, in the meditation. So becoming increasingly sensitized to reality because the equipment, you know, which we have, the heart mind is is kind of honed through the meditation practice and then when we are no longer you know giving a certain meaning or quality to our experience which it doesn't really possess but you know through the letting go of the craving those emotional and cognitive filters dissolve and then there is a much clearer seeing. Not by, you know, forcing anything, but by simply adding something. And that something is by paying attention and inquiring into our experience. For example, you know, what am I telling myself about this object or how does it affect me? And then seeing, you know, what do I bring to my experience. For example, you know, I sit in a room and the door opens and somebody comes in and looks to, at me in a certain way, you know, like maybe my father always has looked at me and there's like a sense of 
hurt, you know, and anger comes up. And then, you know, I'm suddenly three years old again. And if I can pay attention and inquire into it, I can start to notice that, you know, and then not necessarily uh, think that it's the fault of that person, you know, who opened the door and looked at me in a certain way, but I start to understand, you know, there's a Velcro effect, you know. I'm bringing something also to that experience. There's, there's a dynamic there. And then I have power, you know, I can work on that. I can work on my part. So this vulnerability which is revealed, you know, is at the same time also our capacity to be affected and to be in relationship and to adapt, you know, according to reality. And for example, on the word blessure is a, a French word, which means wound, has the same root as the word blessing, the English word blessing. So, you know, that, that wound can become like a, a crack, you know, through which the light can come in and then we can start to see, you know, what's really happening. And then, you know, we are empowered to uh, work with that, you know, and slowly but surely taking the time, you know, and allowing that healing through holding it, uh, you know, with kindness and not, not trying to, you know, project out and not trying to suppress, but to just allowing to be what is and through awareness, allowing that pleasure, you know, to become a blessing. And, uh, you know, this, this vulnerability of ours, which, you know, we have looked at in the body parts and in the elements. I mean, there's so much uh, which cannot be controlled. But if we really, you know, opening up to that vulnerability, it can really lead us to become more invulnerable because we no longer try to be somebody who we have never been and never will be. And, you know, allowing life to, to speak with it for itself and no longer kind of trying to project a lot of stuff on top of it. And also, you know, noticing that, you know, the evolutionary drive goes towards increased vulnerability, like rocks, turtles, and human apes, you know, they are increasingly more and more vulnerable, and the systems become more and more sophisticated. And through that, there's more and more capacity for actually having a relationship with experience. And a turtle goes just immediately into her shell, and there is not much bandwidth, you know. Whereas we, we can make a choice, you know, if we stay in exp in, in relationship or not. And, uh, you know, the word sapere, which, you know, makes up our name, homo sapiens, actually means to taste in, in Latin. So to taste is to know, to have this direct experience like 
You can see a little baby, you know, but if they want to know something, they take it in their mouth because that's the strongest impression, you know, stronger than, than seeing, is to really, with the mouth, the very soft lips and, and to feel what is it. You know, that's, that's that kind of intimacy with our experience, that's what we would like to cultivate through strengthening those factors of awakening in the mind so that then, you know, there's this breakthrough happening, this adaptation moment, this Anuloma Chitta, where we suddenly, yeah, that's how it is. And then all of this extra material which has been projected on top of it, such as that which is without a self, to be a self, that just, it disintegrates, you know. And then what's left is not a nothingness, but a denial of a permanent self. Because I can see all of you here on the screen and you can see me, so I do exist. But I exist in a different way than we usually think we exist. We don't exist from our own side, but we are processes which are coming together. Even the Buddha, you know, he is, is on record for having said, I do not say that things exist or do not exist. I teach dependent origination. So this is a very big difference. Things are dependently arisen and they don't exist from their own side, but it's a coming together and it's a constant flow and a constant change. And that's that insight, you know, into anatta or not-self, which is so central to the Buddhist teaching and which, you know, is in the Theravada we call it not-self and Mahayana and Vajrayana emptiness, empty of a self. It's the same insight. And then, you know, over the centuries in the different traditions and schools it got more and more elaborated and more and more complex and... But in the end of the day, it's all of the same thing. Well, not thing, rather. And uh, I'd like to end with, with one or two poems, you know, from the first Free Women book, which has, uh, you know, aroused so much controversy. And I think now it has died down a little, so I can't dare to read a, a poem or two without having my head cut off, I hope. So, I'm going to start with uh, that poem which is called Tissa the Third. Why stay here in your little dungeon? If you really want to be free, make every thought a sort of freedom. Break your chains, tear down the walls, then walk the world, a free woman. And then there's another one I really like. Punna, full. Fill yourself with the Dharma. When you are as full as the full moon, burst open. Make the dark night shine. So I leave you with those two poems.